Let's, uh, let's start off this session. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of training this session on praying for people for healing, um, but not just physical healing, sort of body, soul, spirit, the whole nine yards. So let me start with a, with a story. I was in Ecuador a number of years ago, and I was doing a, a ministry training with a church on inner healing stuff is what it was supposed to be on. And this particular church had very little backdrop on this stuff, no frame of reference for it. And Ecuador in general was a culture where there wasn't a lot of open, honest conversations. And so I start doing this stuff, and, and I have people coming up to me confessing all kinds of things. And the translator looked at me, and she's like, I've never seen anything like this. Like, I got 60-year-old women coming up to me confessing adulterous affairs that they've had for decades. And she just said, this has never happened in our culture. I've never seen anything like this. And, and uh, so anyways, we're doing this conference afterwards, which was the training for the leaders. And I bring all these folks there, and I'm speaking on some inner healing type issues. And as I'm doing this, there's this one guy in the left-hand corner of this room. It's probably about 70 leaders in the room. And this is one guy in the left corner. He's got his arms folded, and he's got kind of a scowl on his face the whole time. And I thought, man, he is not picking up what I am putting down. This guy is not a happy man. So I would come over to this side of the room, you know, and preach to the friendly Ecuadorians, you know. And then I'd every once in a while make my way back over here, and this guy's still scowling at me. I'm like, I'm going to go preach to the friendly Ecuadorians, you know, and I'd go talk to them for a bit. And so I finished this thing. <coughs> At the end of this talk, we had a ministry time, and for three hours, these folks came forward for prayer, and it was intense. And God did amazing things. But the whole time I was speaking, this guy's never left the corner. He's still sitting there. His arms are folded, scowl on his face. And finally, I'm praying for the last person in my line, and it happened to be the guy's wife. And so I'm praying for her, and all of a sudden he gets up, he walks across the back of the auditorium where we were, and he starts walking down the center aisle. And literally, I prayed this prayer, oh, dear God, please don't let him hurt me. Because <laughs> I thought, this guy is so ticked, you know, he's just going to take a swipe at me. And Ecuadorians in general aren't a very large people in stature, but this guy was like 6'4", you know. He was, he was a big guy, 250 at least. And so I thought, you know, just don't let him hurt me. So anyways, he comes up. And he puts his arms on my shoulder, and he leans in real close to my face, and he said to me, from the moment you started speaking, I felt like I was having a heart attack. I thought, oh, my bad. That was pain on your face. So sorry. Instantly, two phrases came to my mind. I've never met the guy. I never had a conversation with him. Two phrases, father, abuse. And I said to him, uh, you were abused by your father. And as soon as I said it, you know, there's a translator, and he's translating. And as he's translating, I get another thing. I said, there was a scene that happened in your kitchen when you were a boy. And uh, he's now sobbing, just wailing. And I waited for him to, you know, sort of get a hold of himself. And I said to him, describe the scene. And he told me the scene, and just to spare you the details, it was just his father tortured him. It was a horrible story. And after he told me this terrible story, I said, I'm going to pray. And I said, I want you to picture that scene. And I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask Jesus 
just to show himself to you in that memory where he was. And I'm just going to let him do some healing because I got nothing. And he's nodding his head. And so I just prayed this prayer. Lord Jesus, just show him where you were. And again, he's just sobbing. And it went on for a long time. He cried and cried. As a matter of fact, he literally collapsed in my arms, and I held him up for 30 minutes while he sobbed. And I was dying under the weight of this human being. As a matter of fact, I called my translator. I'm like, get in here and help me hold him up. He's killing me. And so we held him up the whole time. And uh, at the end of this session, you know, he had this dramatic encounter with God that was, was incredibly healing. I told you that story to tell you this one. The next day he comes to church, and I'm supposed to be preaching the next day. And this guy walks into the building and... I'm telling you, if he wasn't the largest Ecuadorian in the room, I would not have recognized him because the countenance on his face was completely different. And he walks into the room, and he comes running up to me, and he's speaking rapid-fire Spanish. Now, I don't have a, you know, a word of Spanish. I know nothing. And so I called my translator over, and the translator I said, what, what is he trying to tell me? And he said, he, he said, you know, God met him yesterday and changed his life. He's never felt like this. And so today, he brought his friend so you could pray for her. He told her God's going to heal her. And he points over in a corner, and there's a woman sitting there with a wheelchair. I'm like, I don't do wheelchairs. I do inner healing, deliverance. I don't do wheelchairs. What are you doing to me? And, you know, God, he thinks he's so funny sometimes. That morning, I was preaching on healing. Jesus heals the sick. I'm like, oh, you're so funny. Ha, ha, ha. Okay. So I looked at the guy, and I said to him, okay, here's the deal. I said, I happen to be preaching on Jesus heals this morning because God did a divine setup on me. And I said, the bottom line is, I said, I'll pray for her last. I said, I'm going to pray for everybody else that comes up with the prayer team there with me up front. I said, we'll pray for everybody else that comes, and then when we're done, Everything else I have left, I'll go over and I'll linger with her because it might take a while. He goes, okay, God's going to heal her. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. And so anyways, I, I finished my talk. I'm praying for people. And, you know, there's people that got healed. But it was all stuff I've seen before, you know, elbows and shoulders and, you know, some leg pain, stomach issues, whatever. And, uh, and I'm done with praying with my last person, and she's over there waiting, and he, he comes running over. He sees I'm running out of people, right? He comes running over, grabs my arm, and is dragging me towards his friend. And on my way over, I just like, Lord, I got nothing. And he said to me, the woman who touched the hem of my garment. All right, I know that story. So I walk over, and I said to the translator, I said, ask her if she knows the story about the woman who touched the hem of Jesus' garment. And, and she nods her head while he's translating. And I said, tell her she's the woman. I said, tell her, I just want to picture her in that scene. And said, just close her eyes, see herself in that scene, and just grab a hold of Jesus' garment and just wait. And so, you know, she closes her eyes, and she reaches out, and she, she does this. I thought, that's good. She's getting into the scene. It's good. You know, she's doing this. So I wait for a little while. I'm just praying, come Holy Spirit. I got nothing. So I'm just, you better do something because I got nothing. So I'm waiting on the Lord a little bit. And then I, for a while, I thought, well, I'd kind of check in with her. So I said to her, what's happening? She goes, well, he stopped. Well, of course he stopped. You grabbed the hem of his garment. Where's he going to go? And I said, so what's he doing? She said, he turned around. He's touching my legs. I said, well, that's good. You know, she's got, she's got something going on so she can't walk. So that's probably a good thing. So I'm like, okay. So now I'm getting a little bit of faith. So now I'm praying. But I'm praying out loud. And I, and I I only have English anyway, so I'm, but I'm just, I'm just praying in my head, and I'm saying, Lord, you know, fire, because, you know, lots of times when there's physical healing, there's divine fire, right? People will feel heat, so I'm praying, divine fire, burn away sickness, that kind of prayer. 
Men said anything, and all of a sudden she says something in Spanish. I have no idea what she says, so I said to the translator, what did she say? And he, he goes, she said she's like she's on fire. She's sweating. I said, tell her that's good. That's good. That's good. Mas fuego. Mas. You know, I mean, this, pulled out all the Spanish I got. Senor. Mas fuego. Senor. And so anyway, she starts burning up. She's burning for about 20 minutes. At the end of 20 minutes, she gets up, walks for the first time in five years, walks across the auditorium, grabs a microphone, and gives testimony that Jesus is a healer. <clears throat> that was a good day in the kingdom right there. And uh, listen, I want you to know two things. First, the only reason that lady got healed is because that guy had an encounter that triggered the faith in him to believe God for the next miracle. You are one encounter away from the next miracle. It is often your encounter with God which will trigger a higher level of faith in you to believe God for the next miracle. I didn't have the faith to believe that story, but God intervened in that thing. That guy's name was Raul, by the way. What we want to talk about to, to begin this session as we're going to talk a little bit about physical healing, emotional healing, spiritual healing, I want to talk for a second about the kingdom. The central message of Jesus is about the kingdom of God. And it just seems to me, if this is the central message of Jesus, we ought to be able to know what it is and define it pretty well. And so, this is Jesus' opening line. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And everything Jesus does, from the time he starts with that word till the time he leaves and ascends to heaven, his final word in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, to his disciples, he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. And everything in between those bookends, he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. It is the dominant theme of Jesus' teaching. And so, we got to figure out what the kingdom of God is and you know, sort of what it involves. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and heal every disease and sickness. If you read that further, you'll see he teaches them to go proclaim the message that the good news of the kingdom is in their midst. And part of the message involved these transformation things. Let me give you a little on the kingdom. The kingdom of God is the reversal of everything that went wrong with the world when sin entered the world. That's what the kingdom is. So just work with me for a second. Before sin entered the world, there was no sickness. Sickness entered the world as a result of the fallen nature of humanity. So when Jesus comes, he comes proclaiming healing. Why? Because the kingdom is the reversal of everything that went wrong with the world when sin entered the world, and that included sickness. Jesus raises the dead and finally rises himself from the dead. Why? Because death was a byproduct of sin entering the world. So the kingdom involves resurrection and eternal life. The kingdom involves reconciliation to God. Why? Because sin separates us from God. The kingdom involves reconciliation to one another. Why? Because the, there was, when sin entered the world, a separation with people. Even Adam and Eve end up fighting in the very first from this separation. And so this is what the kingdom is. It's all this stuff. And when you see Jesus doing kingdom ministry, this is why you see him healing the sick, casting out demons, returning things to justice the way they should be, caring for the poor, helping a message of transformation salvation, and deliverance. I was just sitting here trying to remember. It was either 16 or 17 years ago. 
Um, I never, um, you know, I did doctoral work in, in education, so I was always trying to figure out what's the best testing approach, especially in graduate level courses that were more experiential than content driven. So I figured out oral final exams were always better than written exams. And so I just started perfecting the oral final exam. And I remember an oral final exam 16 or 17 years ago. And um, there's a guy who's now become, he's a West Point grad, um, one of those unique people who is a chaplain, um, but also uh, he, as a chaplain, passed Ranger Corps training. So he has the respect of all the people. He brought me in to do some stuff with... Uh, Pentagon, etc. But he was a grad student back then, 16 or 17 years ago, in the final exam. I said, you know, what concept stuck out most? And he said, the kingdom. I said, interesting. And he said, you talk more about the kingdom than anybody I've ever met. Of course, my response is typically, well, you need to get out more, or you need different friends. And he said, look, I'm, I'm on staff in an Alliance church, a good one. And he said, I've, you know, I've been through uh, the military and been lots of places. No one talks about the kingdom like this. And I said to the class, is, is, that, is that true? And they said, yeah, kind of. You, you just talk about it. Well, thankfully, it's changed since then. But just be aware of how much in the Gospels Jesus references the kingdom and how little we do sometimes. Yeah. Remember my own sister said to me one time, why do you talk about the kingdom all the time? And she said, I, I've been in church since I was, I think she was 23 or 4 or 5 when she came to faith in Christ. And she goes, my church never talks about the kingdom. Said, well, it's not a very interesting place either. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not where the cool hip kids go, that's for sure. And she said, no, I think this is about you. You have an overemphasis on the kingdom. And I said, let me just summarize it. And it's one of these, starting with the Lord's Prayer, the kingdom come, that would be done to remember, on earth as it is in the heavens. I said, how many times have you prayed it? Thousands. Did you not know what you were praying? She goes, no. So that's, at its essence, become people who think pray, live, the kingdom. It's really simple. So the second definition, really, that I give is a positive one. Instead of, you know, the reversal, which is kind of the negative take on everything that went wrong, the positive is it's the restoration of the way God intended things to be at the beginning. That's what it is. That's what the kingdom is. It's restoring things back to the Garden of Eden, if you will. It's, that's the kingdom. Hear me for a second. This is really important, and most churches sadly don't get this. If you're not doing kingdom ministry, you're a social club. It is cosmic treason for the church to hold the keys of the kingdom and not to use them to set the captives free. He has given us the keys of the kingdom, and there are people that cannot get free unless the church utilizes the keys that they have been entrusted and so he has given us authority and his Holy Spirit's power to minister in ways that sets people free from all the defects of this world and its fallenness. This is the beauty of the kingdom. 
It's a powerful thing. By the way, it is way more fun when you're doing kingdom ministry and you get to see the stuff that Jesus does. It is fun to see people get up out of wheelchairs and walk. It is fun to see the power of God come and people get set free from demons. It is fun to see inner healing that leads to deep transformation. It is boring to sit in Sunday school and listen to teachings that I've heard my whole life with no transformation. Are you with me? We want to see the kingdom. That's what Jesus did. Let me pull together a lot of what we've talked about already. Because if, let, let's, let's take the kingdom and tie it to what we did this morning of listening and prophetic words. Prophetic words were never to simply be inside the family of faith. No. We've got to take prophetic words outside. And that's not religious rants. That's not political values. It, it is the kingdom. It's the empowerment. I'll, I'll give you one very dramatic example for me. It was uh, two and a half years ago. It was, it was actually two years ago this month. Uh, I was invited to speak at the Pentagon. Now, that's a, that's a rare invitation for a bloke like me. They gave me 40 couples, colonel to general. It was top, more top brass. And I was to address couples for an evening. And so I got there early, and... Um, Always make sure when you have one of these mics, you can float among the crowd because you never know if you're going, there's going to be some demonic thing and you got to go take care of it and you hate it when it makes a terrible noise or you go back and speak to someone or pray over them. And so I was checking the mic out and the general in charge came up and uh, was very welcoming. And I said to him, we just, can we clarify something? I said, uh, I know I got invited because I, you know, I'm perceived as a bit of a scholar, doctoral guy, run a doctoral program, etc. But I said, just understand, I'm, I'm, I'm a preacher. That's who I am. And so tonight, I want to do pastor stuff. He goes, I've heard your stuff. Son, I trust you. Son? Come on. I'm 60. Son? <laughs> and I said, I just, I just don't want you to be surprised. And I, I will, at the end, I'm going to pray over people. He goes, heard your stuff? Trust you, matter of fact. So I finished my talk and uh, began to walk among the crowd, ask everybody to stand. And uh, to every officer that was male, I went and put my hand in the middle of his chest and prayed. Four times I shut off the mic and I leaned in and said, unfaithfulness stops tonight. I didn't look at what rank they were. They had their uniforms. And twice I said, unfaithfulness stops tonight for both of you. I had cards in my pocket, pulled them out, handed them and said, I want to hear from you in the next 48 hours. That was like a command. I have no authority in the military. I just talk big. It was just one very, again, you use whatever it is you have. I don't expect to get invited to the Pentagon. You're probably not going to get invited to speak there. But whatever your context, how do I take the best of what the Spirit's doing for me, for us? How do I give a prophetic word in a place that doesn't welcome, even acknowledge them? 
How do I bring the kingdom into places that don't have a framework for it? By simply, as the fully redeemed person, under the authority of Christ, speaking his words in his way, in his moments. It's kingdom. And if you think about Jesus' ministry, man, Jesus uses these phrases in the Gospel of John. He says, I only do what the Father tells me to do. I only go where the Father tells me to go. I only say what the Father tells me to say. If I could sum up Jesus' ministry philosophy, this is it. Every time he walked into a room, he would look that room over and say, Father, what are you up to? And he would look for the Father's action in the room and join him in it. That is what kingdom ministry is. The prophetic is directly linked to kingdom activity. As I walk into rooms, I'm sitting there going, what's the Father up to? I walk into restaurants and I pray this prayer. Lord, is there a word you have for the waiter, for the waitress? And if the Lord will give me a word, I'll give it to him. I've had waitresses sit at my table and pray with me because they're sobbing over a prophetic word I give them. It's a restaurant, and that's where the kingdom is birthed. And so we have to listen just like Jesus did. The more we can walk like this, the more we see cool kingdom stuff. It, notice it's not religious. It's not a tract. There's absolutely nothing religious about this. It's very human, but very connected to God. Revelation 21, you notice this is the end when things are restored. Again, here are the terms of the kingdom. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, all the pain, all the disappointment, all the sorrow that has come from a fallen, broken, sin-stained planet will be erased. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, physical, emotional, spiritual pain, all of it for the old order, the things that have been affected and impacted by sin has passed away. This is the kingdom. And what the Lord is up to on this planet today is trying to use people like you and me to help minister the kingdom and its impact on people's lives day in and day out. And when Jesus comes, he inaugurates the kingdom, and one of the things that he does is heals people's body. There's physical healing in the kingdom. So, for example, think with me about Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. This is the story where Jesus starts by healing a leper. And, you know, you can read all the verses later. I'll just read these couple to you in a second. Remember, he starts with a, a leper. There's a very interesting healing in the leper story because he doesn't just speak a word, which we know he has the capacity to just speak a word because with the centurion, the next story, he speaks a word and the guy is healed, right? But this guy who is a leper, who is an untouchable, he reaches out and touches Listen, the reason for that is because the man had way more than physical healing that he needed. He needed emotional healing. He had been an outcast. And Jesus touches him as part of his healing. Not just physically. He did not need to touch him physically to heal him. He does it emotionally. Okay? And then there's a centurion story where, you know, Jesus speaks a word from a distance. And then finally, there's Peter's mother-in-law where, you know, she has a fever and Jesus lays a hand on her and she's healed. But then there's this summary statement, and I want you to catch the summary, verse 16 and 17 at the end of the chapter. When evening came, many were there, were demon-possessed, were brought to Jesus. By the way, better Greek translation into the English would be demonized. It's not really demon possession. 
demonized has to do with influence. Possession sounds like it has to do with ownership, and it's really not an ownership issue. You were created by God. You were redeemed by the blood. You are twice His. The ownership issue, settled. If you use a suitcase analogy, the suitcase of your soul belongs to God. There's a whole bunch of stuff in the suitcase that's nice, neat, folded, clean, packed clothes. That's God's work. And then over here on the left-hand side of the suitcase is a dirty sock. Sometimes it's sin, and sometimes it's a demonic thing that needs to go, okay? Really, discipleship is the process of appropriating the victories of Jesus. Everything that has been, you know, required for us to live in complete victory has been accomplished by Jesus in the heavenly realms. Our job is to appropriate His victory on our daily lives. Well, here's the reality. How many of you still have sin in your life? Anybody not want to raise their hand on that one? Because if you do, we'd like to have you up front, and we'd like to pray with you. Um, everybody still has sin. Well, wait a second. Jesus did everything we need so we could be holy and perfect. So why aren't we holy and perfect? The answer is because we've not yet appropriated the victory of Jesus to every area in the suitcase of the soul. Okay? It's the same thing with demonization. There are pockets sometimes where there's influence here. And that's all he's talking about. That's demonization. So when the evening came, many were demonized, were brought to Jesus, and he drove out the spirits with a word, and he healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. He's talking about Jesus' death on the cross. This is Isaiah 53 where he's prophesying Jesus' death. And in that prophecy, he says, when Jesus died on the cross, he took up all our pain, and he took up our infirmity, and he took up our diseases. This is where there's healing. And I, I just think what Jesus did on the cross created the pathway for healing. So let me just give you a couple of keys to praying for sick people. Tomorrow, we're going to release you in church to pray for the sick. Tonight, we're going to do it again in here, right at the end of this session amongst one another, whether it's physical or emotional. We want to train you. Listen, you can take this to the streets. You could do this. I've done this in airports. I've done this on planes with people I don't know. I don't just use this stuff in church, like Martin said. So a couple of keys. Here you go. Number one, you really have to persist in faith if you're going to see a release of healing in your midst as a church and in your community. I said to you yesterday, there's only two times Jesus is amazed in the Bible. The once with the centurion, amazed at the guy's great faith. The other was the hometown where he's amazed by his lack of faith. And, you know, this requires persistent faith. When we started doing, you know, healing stuff at South Shore, you know, I would call people in a communion service to come up and we'd pray for them and anoint them and so forth. And a lot of days, a lot of days, no one got healed. And you know what? It would have been really easy to pray for those people, see nobody get healed, and go, yes, this isn't working. I don't want to keep doing this. But I really wanted to get to the place where we were seeing healing regularly like the Gospels because I believe that's the way the kingdom should be. So what I realized I had to do is I had to keep pressing into this and not quitting because I wasn't seeing what I wanted to see. So one day, I got up, and I was doing a talk on healing again, and this talk, I was just preaching James 5. You know, prayer makes a sick person well, confess your sins to one and all that passage. 
And so I, I get up in the morning, I've prepared the talk, I've practiced the talk, I'm ready to go, and I get up in the morning and I said to the Lord on Sunday morning, says, is there anything you want me to do different with the talk? And I hear the Holy Spirit, he says to me, nope, give the talk exactly like you prepared it, but when you get to the end, add one sentence, just say, Jesus led me to give this talk today because he's going to heal you today, many of you today. And I said, I ain't saying that, Lord. So you don't understand. If I say that and you don't heal anybody, I'm the guy that looks like an idiot. You look fine. You skate because no one's going to believe that you were wrong, so they're all blaming me. So I ain't going to do that unless you prove that that's you. And you know what God did? He went silent on me. I hate when that happens. You know when God most goes silent on you? When he's already told you what to do and you're refusing. You've cut him off from access. So I went to church. We're in worship. Everybody's enjoying the worship. We had a killer band. Everybody's loving the worship. I'm hating it. I can't concentrate. I'm just sitting there going, God, you got to talk to me. I got to know this is you. I mean, you got to give me certainty on this thing. That's why they call it faith. Because lots of times, it's not terribly certain. And so finally, I get up. I give the talk. And it's, it's decision time. You're going to step up or you're not. And so I give the talk. I finish the talk. And when I was done, I thought, oh, what the heck? What do I got to lose? Just my job. Who cares? I'll find another one. So I said to him, listen, the Lord woke me up this morning. And he told me to tell you the reason why he led me to give this talk today is because he's going to heal many of you today. And we had a rush of people come down front. That day, we had 13 people healed. It was the most people I've ever seen healed at South Shore in one day. It was unbelievable. We had a guy that was going in for back surgery the next day. We prayed for him. He felt fire on his back, heat on his back. He went home. He was on heavy doses of, you know, medicative drugs trying to take away pain. He threw away his bottle of pills. He never had back surgery. The guy ended up dying. He was an old man later on. He died years later, and he never, ever had a back pain again in his life. It was unbelievable. We had a woman, while I was preaching, she had a, a, two things going on. One was she felt something going on in her shoulder, just annoying pain. And the other was she was sick to her stomach and sick to the place where, you know, every time she took in food, she'd throw up. She couldn't hold food down. She'd been to the doctor, couldn't figure out what this thing was. She's sitting there in the service, and all of a sudden, she feels like electricity start at her shoulder where that little <clears throat> nagging pain was shoot down through her body and she could not take in anything particularly that had to do with milk products she feels this uh, energy run through her this electricity she went home and ate a bowl of ice cream she's like i'm testing this thing out ate ice cream drank milk never was sick again with this thing uh, it was just amazing we saw so many cool things that day uh, one lady i was standing up front praying for someone else she walked past me and god healed her of migraine headaches she'd had battles with migraines for years and literally no one prayed for her no one laid a hand on her but I want you to hear me. The only reason that day occurred was because of persistent faith. You know, Jesus has this great parable in Luke chapter 8, right, verses 1, no, Luke 18, the first part of the chapter, Luke 18. He talks about the persistent widow. And you know the story. It's his sentence at the end that has always bothered me. 
At the end of telling the story of the persistent widow, he makes this comment. He said, the question is, will the Son of Man find faith when he gets back to earth? Now, I don't know about you, but when I get to the end of my life, I do not want to be counted among the skeptics. I want to be counted amongst those who signed up to believe Jesus for great kingdom things. I want to do the best I can on this planet to amaze him with my faith and not my skepticism. Are you with me? Yeah. Second thing, besides this kind of persistent faith, when you go to pray for someone here today, we're going to have an opportunity for you to pray for one another. When you go to pray for that person, the most important thing I can ever say to people is don't make it too much about you. Get your eyes on Jesus. When I pray for people, I use this phrase all the time. I have nothing. It's not a joke. Literally, I got nothing. I, I, can't, I don't have the ability to heal the soul. I don't have the ability to heal the body. I bring nothing to the party. So all I do is I say to them, let's get our eyes on Jesus together. And literally, I will just enter into his presence with my eyes fixed on Jesus. That's all I do. Years ago, I was <clears throat> at a class with Martin. We were teaching. And uh, I was praying in the class. We did a, a little time where we gave people time alone with God, and then we just kind of wandered through the room and laid hands on people as we felt like the Lord was leading us. And his wife was there. Diana was there. And she was sitting in the back of the room. And I went back, you know, wandering through, and I felt like God wanted me to go lay hands on Diana. So she was sitting in the way back, and I just went back and laid my hand on her, and I just sat with her for a little bit. I never prayed anything out loud, and then I moved on. He calls me up Monday, and uh, he said to me, hey, bud, how are you? I said, good. And he goes, uh, do you, you know, he asked me about church and how church went the next day, blah, blah, blah. And then he says to me, he goes, uh, you prayed for Diana Saturday. I go, yeah. He goes, what did you pray? I said, nothing. He goes, you can't pray nothing. I said, yeah, I, I didn't pray anything. He goes, well, I mean, you, you didn't pray out loud, but I mean, what were you thinking? I said, I wasn't thinking anything. He goes, you can't think nothing and pray nothing. What do you mean? I said to him, all I did was I entered into Jesus' presence while I was with Diana. I said, why? What happened? He goes, she felt like electricity running through her body. I said, yeah, that was him. I got nothing, you know. Listen to me. What I have discovered is when I go to pray for people, I just try to enter his presence. I get my eyes on him. I fix on his presence. And then I let him do what only he can do. I brought nothing to the party. And when I leave, I take nothing with me. Just get your eyes on Jesus. Don't make it about you. If I could say there's one thing the church needs to change today is we're making it way too much about us and not enough about him. And if you make it too much about you and not enough about him, you will only see what you have been able to do and you will never see what he is only capable of doing. Make it about him. Okay? Eyes on Jesus. And lastly, and this one's really important, this is even there in the James 5 healing stuff, make sure your confessions, and I'm talking this time you plural, both you the person who is being prayed for and you, the person who is praying, make sure your confessions are current because sin really blocks the flow of the Spirit. Years ago, I went to a healing service in Redding, California. I wanted to see more healing and out there in Redding. They've been seeing a ton of healing, and so I went out to a conference out there that was on healing. Uh, John Arnott was the speaker. John was the uh, pastor of the Toronto Revival thing that I talked about, the airport revival thing that took place years ago in the 90s, and John spoke. John spoke. He's, he's very, very joyful. He's very loving. He's very humble. 
His, his talk was all about Jesus. He had no flair. Wasn't it all about him? Um, but one of the things that he realized is central to healing was people really need to forgive those who sinned against them. Like the dominant issue around sin and sickness seems to be bitterness. It's really common. And so he just simply said to people, you know what? If you have someone you need to forgive, I want you to forgive them. And he gave them a moment, had a Holy Spirit moment, you know, and like we did last night and had people forgive. And then they prayed for the sick after they started to forgive people. I, I think we saw 400 people healed. I'm, I'm talking like skin rashes disappearing in front of me. People who were in like, you know, neck braces that were, you know, in obvious pain were released. People who couldn't move their shoulder because it was frozen, like they couldn't lift it, you know, beyond this, and they're just jumping up and down, throwing their hands in the air. I mean, intense stuff. It was fun. But it all started with forgiveness. And I think the bottom line is, got to keep your sins confessed currently. I'm always interested in how these work in a church. Um, when I first moved to Nyack forever ago, um, soon there was a transition, and it was at Simpson Memorial Church in Nyack. Now, when you say that, you just have to pause for a moment of silence. A.B. Simpson Church at Nyack. I, I used to tell people that um, his bones were uh, entombed in the basement, <laughs> and, and uh, that often people would just come and be healed, and they go, really? I went, oh, that's just a weird story. Anyhow, <laughs> I was a uh, pastor had just left, and I, was, uh, I just said I'd fill in for a few weeks, and a um, youth pastor was supposed to give some announcement and went way too long. And there wasn't, this wasn't time for communion either. We had to scrap the, the, the message or communion. And I just made a decision. I said, we're, we're going to do a um, message with response. And then we're going to uh, actually, I announced it. Nobody, I didn't get permission. Just announced we're going to have a service tonight for communion and healing. And I just made the judgment call and it happened. And that evening, after communion, um, they weren't known for their healing services. Uh, we just gathered elders and people knew how to pray. And I think we had uh, eight people wanted prayer for healing. And uh, four had dramatic healing. Like one guy had profound hearing loss. He could barely hear anything, and his healing was restored completely. And so, I mean, when the... When the people can't hear, hear. That's kind of a Jesus story. Somebody else had, um, you know, it was, it was the era of Epstein-Barr and the early days of that. One guy was just about down, and it was just released. I mean, it was all gone. There were four of those. Now, here's what I found interesting. I said to the elders, why don't we do one of these a month, or why don't we do these every Sunday night? And their response was, um, no, let's kind of wait and see. Wait and see what? And they literally said, this, this feels like pressure. Well, dude, it's not about you. you. You can't make those who can't hear, hear. You just prayed. 
They told me later, it was seven years before they did another healing service. No, when, when Rob says we make too much about us, we make way too much about us. Way so much. Don't, don't be tough on them. We, we all do it in some form. Theirs was just really profound. Seven years after God had had a sweeping movement. Let's just wait and see. No, don't wait and see. Second, not only does Jesus heal the body, he also heals the soul. And, you know, we already mentioned the leper who Jesus touched. There's an emotional healing that takes place in this moment. You know, you have to understand in this culture, right, when you were a leper, you had to walk down the street. You weren't allowed to come within 100 yards of somebody else. And you had to cry out, you know, unclean, you screamed. People would see you, and if you got too close, they would spit on you. This guy has been extremely damaged in his soul by the ostracization of society against him. And Jesus, to walk up to him as a holy man and touch him was unthinkable. Ron Walborn, our friend and dean at the seminary, always has this line. He says, in the Old Testament, when the clean came in contact with the unclean, the clean became defiled. But in the New Testament, when the clean comes in contact with the unclean, the unclean becomes holy. That's exactly what happened. And Jesus was resetting the boundary lines for people. And so he walks up, touches this guy to guy's heel. Well, this is not just a physical healing. This is an amazing emotional moment in this man's life that has been completely separated from people, okay? Second one, think about the woman who also had a problem that left her in society's eyes unclean. The woman who touched the hem of Jesus' garment. I mentioned this story before in the Raul story. This woman, remember, works her way through the crowd and grabs hold of Jesus. But Jesus wouldn't let her go. He singles her out, calls her forward. He says, looking for her in the crowd, I felt power leave me, you know. So, someone has touched me who's experienced healing. Listen, you know, when I read this story for years, I thought, well, you know, he did that because he felt the power leave, and so he knew there was a healing, and, you know, no, no, no. He singled her out because he knew her healing was not complete. She had had a physical healing, but she needed emotional healing. And I say that because in Mark 6, 56, wherever Jesus went in towns and villages and countryside, they placed the sick in marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. Listen, everywhere Jesus went, people touched him and got healed. But this is the only time it singled out that he grabbed this woman and talked to her. This happened every place he went. And he never singles out another person that's recorded in Scripture except this one lady. That's because the healing was not done with a physical healing alone. He needed to touch her soul. There was a bleeding thing going on. She couldn't interact with other people. It had been going on for 18 years. And he had to touch her soul. That's why he singles her out. So Jesus isn't just concerned about healing the body. He's also concerned about emotional healing. And that's one of the things you see him doing in the New Testament. Again, go back to this passage in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4 and 5. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. That word for pain that's up there, the Hebrew word is used for physical pain in the, in the Psalms. It's used for emotional pain. It's used for spiritual pain. It's a very broad, encompassing word. 
He bore our suffering. I would argue, by the way, that there's a double meaning to that phrase, he bore our suffering. On the one hand, he suffered for us, atonement. But there's also the sense of when he was on the cross, he suffered the things you have suffered from. He took up your pain on the cross, and he bore your suffering. And that's right in the context. He took up our pain and bore our suffering. The things you have suffered, he has suffered with you on the cross. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. That's the cleansing work of his blood and washing away our sins. The punishment that brought us peace, literally wholeness, shalom, was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die for your sins to be washed away. He died for your souls to be healed. And there's a healing that can occur through the cross. I had a woman one day in one of the conferences I was at, and she was also a seminary student. And uh, she was really shut down emotionally. And so Ron and I were doing this conference together, and so he's leaving early to go see a football game. Oh. <laughs> Notorious Ron. So he's leaving to go watch the Steelers someplace. And uh, so he's, as he's walking out the door of the conference, he texts me. We have one service left, and he shoots me a text. He goes, you need to go see Ruth. Can you go pray with Ruth? I said, sure. So I walk in the other room where Ruth is, and I walk out to see her, and I said to her, hey, Ron wants me to pray with you. And as soon as I walked in the room, she goes, oh, it's you, she goes, with real attitude. And I looked at her, and I go, hey, I don't have to pray with you if you don't want me to. I said, but Ron wanted me to pray with you. He says, you know, you're struggling a bit. I said, if you want prayer, I'm happy to pray. She goes, okay. I'm like, <laughs> listen, man, there's a lot of people I could pray with. So I said, you know, I don't know why you're copping an attitude with me, but I said, uh, if you want, I'm willing to do it. I said, tell me your story. And so this is the gist of the story, the part that's most important. She grew up in an Asian context, and in this particular home where she grew up, her mother used to say a phrase to her from the time she was little till the time she graduated from high school and left the house, and this was the phrase. Asian women are just oppressed. That's the way it is. It's never going to change. Get used to it. Asian women are just oppressed. That's the way it is. It's never going to change. Just get used to it. And she was completely shut down. I said to her, I said, Ruth, I said, you know, if you were to uh, be really honest with me today, and I said, I'm going to take a guess, and I want you to be honest. I said, it seems to me like you have very little emotional uh, experience. It's like you're flat all the time. She said, yep. I said, okay. I said, you don't feel lots of joy and you don't feel lots of sadness. It's almost like you're numb. She said, yep. And she's very flat, what she's telling me. I said, okay. I said, can I ask you a question from your childhood? She said, yeah. I said, when you experience pain, emotional pain in your childhood, what did you do? She said, I went to my room. I said, what did you do there? She said, nothing. I said, did you listen to music? She said, no. I said, did you pray? She said, no. I said, did you journal? She said, no. I said, what did you do? She said, nothing. I just sat there. I said to her, you didn't talk to your friends? She said, no. I said, okay. I said, I'm going to give you an image. I said, it's like you're sitting in a solitary steel box, and Jesus is standing outside the door, and he's knocking on the door, and he wants you to let him in. He goes, she goes, he could come in if he wants to, 
I said, no, you have to understand, the one thing God most wants is access. And I said, your mother told you Asian men are oppressive to Asian women. And I'm telling you, Jesus is not oppressive or abusive. He will knock on the door, but he will not kick the door open. You must let him in. And she looked at me and she goes, I don't know if I want him in. And I said, that's exactly right. I said, it's because you don't trust him because of your pain. And she said, that's true. And I said to her, well, here's the deal. I'm not going to kick the door open either. So I said, it's really simple. I said, if you want prayer today, before we finish, come and see me. And if you don't, he'll wait for you. She said, okay. So I finished the talk I was given. When I finished the talk, she's the first person that comes up to me. And she's standing there, and I saw her, and I walked over to her, and I said to her, are you ready? And she said, I am ready. And I said to her, I want you to picture that little box, close your eyes, see yourself locked in that little tight box. And I said, Jesus is knocking. I want you to open the door and let him in. And as she did that, I laid my hand on her, and she went right down like a bag of rocks, just boom, over. She laid on the floor for 45 minutes in the presence of God. Here's what I want you to know. Over the next three months, her emotions got unpacked from the suitcase of her soul. She cried more than she'd ever cried in her life. She laughed more than she'd ever laughed in her life. She said, like, for three months, my emotions were erratic. And it was because he was taking all this stuff that had been stuffed in the suitcase of her soul, and he just started unpacking it. And after that, she became like a person with a personality instead of a person who was numbed out to all of life. Here's the problem when you shut down your negative emotions. When you lock down your negative emotions and repress them and shut them down, you also knock, lock down all the positive emotions. And pretty soon, all you feel is a little tiny bandwidth of numbness. And the only way you can open up joy and peace and love and all these positive emotions is you're going to have to unpack the negative emotions. And if you're not willing to go there and give him access, you can never experience all the fullness that he has. And that's what happened to Ruth. But the great news about Jesus is he's really interested in healing your soul. Again, the only reason he shines light into the suitcase is never to make you feel bad. It's to get you free. Anything you want to add? Yeah, I want to add to this. <clears throat> I, did, I didn't know this young woman that Rob just told the story of. And we were actually doing a conference, and she was there. I'd never met her. And um, I actually came in late, and Rob was speaking. And so I just sat in a chair, like, on the side, up against the wall. And she'd gone out to go to the bathroom or something, and she came in. There was a seat beside me. And she just came over and sat down beside me. I didn't know her name, knew that she needed some extra. So she sat there and sort of sat very close. So I ended up just sort of putting my arm around the back of the chair. She sort of snuggled in almost. And um, probably sat there till Rob was done talking. I was supposed to be up there on the stool with him. But I just sat there. And uh, after 45 minutes or so, she turned to me and she goes, I've never gotten this from a father. I said, I feel like I just got a giant installment from my soul. I didn't know any of the story. I heard the story later. And she goes, 
my trust levels have just gone way up. So we've, we've talked about the human deposits. We've talked about living out faith in community. We, we don't know what each other needs. And, uh, so we're the safe people who represent Christ to one another. We're at um, something at Rob's church, and there was a, a younger woman who was um, ex, ex, I, I want to she was exceptionally large, um, and I had just finished speaking. And she came up and was shaking, trembling voice, and she said, um, I, she said, I'd like prayer. And I said, the classic, we'll talk about this moment, what would you like Jesus to do for you? And she couldn't get it out. And I said, but it'd be okay if I don't hug you, I actually hold you. Now, I don't expect you to notice this, but I have disproportionately long arms. I'm one of the few people you ever meet who can scratch their knees without bending over. Um, only, only two creations have arms this long, boxers and gorillas. And so I tell you this because I could not get my arms around her. And I tried my best. I just pulled her in tight. And um, she has stayed there forever. An uncomfortably long time for me. And finally she pulled away and she looked up and I said, how would you like me to pray now? She goes, I, I don't need it. Some, sometimes, sometimes. Uh, it's in this human connection that there is a translation or if you prefer transference of the power of God from one person to another. Yeah. As Rob said, when he just stood behind Diana, didn't say anything. She knew she was getting downloaded by the power of God alone. Rob just happened to be there. Here's what I love most, is when God does something great and you just happen to be there at the same time. Me too. For mere mortals like us, that's kind of as good as it gets. No doubt. I don't know if you consider yourself mere mortals, but that's a pretty cool gig that people like us get to be used by God in those kind of ways. So true. Third thing, not only does Jesus heal the body and the soul, but he also heals the spirit. Yeah. Two, two thoughts on this one. The first one, you know, is obvious, and that is when you put your faith in Christ, according to Paul in Ephesians 2, you move from spiritual death to spiritual life. The Spirit of God is deposited in you. This is what regeneration, this is what it means to be born again. You come alive spiritually. You've moved from death to life. And when that deposit of the Spirit takes root in you, your spirit comes alive. That is healing of the Spirit, okay? But there's a second sense in which Jesus heals the Spirit, and that has to do with deliverance ministries. Listen, there are some problems that are physical problems, and you either need a, a medical solution or you need a miracle. There are other problems that are emotional problems, and you either need some, sometimes some medicine for that, sometimes you need some inner healing counseling stuff for that, and, and, and then there's other problems. They're spiritual in nature. And hear me for a second. No amount of counseling is going to help you. 
low amount of medication is going to help you. You need deliverance. And if you don't get it, you're not going to be well. And this is just reality. Mark chapter 5, Jesus deals with probably the most severe case in the New Testament. This is the Gadarean demoniac. You'll remember the story that this guy is living in the tombs. Remember, he's cutting himself, okay? Notice an increase in cutting in this generation. It's not an accident. Listen, we're in a different changing worldview, unlike any other time in our lifetimes. The, the world has dramatically changed, and I, I just need to set the stage for this next story by talking about the world change that we're in right now. Uh, how many of you grew, grew up watching Scooby-Doo? Anybody not know who Scooby-Doo is? Okay, great. Scooby-Doo, you know, was a, a cartoon character. You know, the reason why this illustration works is because it is the longest-running uh, longest TV show in the history of TV. Did you know that? Hear me. I don't mean reruns. What I mean is continually new episodes. It is the longest-running TV show in the history of TV. It started in the late 1960s with the Scooby-Doo Where Are You? The latest Scooby-Doo reiteration was actually a show that came out this year with Scooby-Doo and the characters from the show Supernatural in cartoon version. Anybody ever watch the show Supernatural? In this crowd, I got one or two people. Okay, well, that show came out with a cartoon version, and it's the gang and Scooby and the sh characters from Supernatural. They did multiple episodes of this thing. So anyhow, um, the reason why I want to mention Scooby-Doo, one, because it's the longest-running TV show, and two, because it illustrates the change that has taken place in our worldview. When the 1960s rolled around, we were living deeply in a modern worldview. So every cartoon was revealing the modern worldview. This is how they all worked. At the beginning of the cartoon, the gang discovered a ghost. By the end of the cartoon, the ghost had been unmasked, and what was revealed was it wasn't a ghost, it was merely a villain dressed up as a ghost. They were presenting a worldview. The worldview they were presenting was modernism, and what they were telling you was this. Behind every apparent supernatural phenomenon is a natural explanation. That's modernism. Mid-1990s, I'm over a friend's house. My friend and I were out in the kitchen. His kid, about five, is in the other room in the living room. And, uh, you know, we're eating our dinner. We finished dinner. Now we got cake and coffee. And I hear in the living room, Scooby-Doo. Well, I like Scooby-Doo. It's my favorite cartoon. So I go wandering out in the other room to sit down with the kid on the floor to watch Scooby. Kid's sitting on the floor. He's got his cup, his coffee, you know, he's got his cake, rather, and I'm sitting next to him. I got my coffee, and we're watching Scooby eating cake and, and drinking our drinks, and there's a ghost. Well, there's always a ghost. It's Scooby-Doo. The only difference was this time at the end of the cartoon, the ghost was still a ghost. And I went, ruh row. Someone has just taught an apparent new generation that behind apparent spiritual phenomenon is an actual spiritual being. Oh, that changed everything. At the same time frame, a little book series came out by the name of Harry Potter. Hear me. I am not a Christian who bashes things. 
My kids have read Harry Potter. I have watched Scooby-Doo with my kids. I believe these are tremendous tools to help access worldview problems, and if you can actually use them as a discipleship moment to teach into a biblical frame of reference and worldview, it could be productive. So I sat down with this stuff, and I went, wow, this is teaching a worldview that acknowledges a spiritual world. Now hear me. What they don't do is acknowledge two things. First, that there's always a clear distinction between good and evil spirits. And second, that there's a king of all spirits known as Jesus. See, they don't do that for you. But if you take that worldview and you teach that to your children, you've got a winning combination. So what's happened in this generation is there's been an incredible increase in spiritual experimentation. Tremendous increase. I'm just going to help you. You have no idea what's happening in the world because you live in a cloistered Christian community called church. Here's what's happening in the world. The town that I was in in Bridgewater, Massachusetts, we had three spiritual influencing people in the town, me, the Catholic priest, and a medium. The medium was a, was a best-selling author in the category of spirituality. She wrote a book called The Medium Next Door. It became the number one selling book in spirituality category. This woman had a Disney reality TV show called The Medium Next Door. This woman sold out auditoriums to 800 people at 50 bucks a ticket. She'd stand up and give prophetic words from the platform to the auditorium. Hear me. Seven times she was in my public high school giving prophetic words to the entire student body. This never would have happened 20 years ago in the U.S., not 10 years ago in the U.S., never. I literally called up the principal, and I said, can I meet with you? Yes. And I got in her office, I was with my wife, and I said to her, listen, I never thought I'd have to pull this line out of my hat, but I said, here it is. I said, this lady, being in our public high school, is a violation of the separation of church and state. To which she said to me, oh, no, she said, this isn't spiritual. I said, would you care to Google medium with me? I said, it's completely spiritual. I couldn't convince her. She wouldn't put a quash on it. So I went above her head, went to the superintendent. The superintendent squashed it. And this year, we got a new superintendent. She was back in a public high school there in Bridgewater. Now, I've moved. But hear me for a second. Oh, this is brand new. This wouldn't have happened 10 years ago in the U.S. Well, I'll tell you another one. My, my father has AML, acute myeloid leukemia. It's a deadly cancer, a horrible disease. But he was in Dana-Farber. Dana-Farber is a leading medical cancer, you know, research teaching institute in the United States, one of the top three. Dana-Farber is where all Harvard-trained oncologists are getting their training, okay, from all over the world. Every day, I mean, he was in the hospital for a month. I was in there every single day during that month. Every day he was in the hospital, a Harvard-trained doctor, nurse, a person who was a social worker or some other person that was a medical staff member would come into his room and offer him Reiki. Now, for those of you who don't know, uh, Reiki is a Japanese term that means spiritual power for healing. That's really what it is. And hear me, when you tap into spiritual power for healing, you only have two sources. You either have Jesus or you have a dark source. And they aren't doing it in Jesus' name. This is a dark source 
for healing. And I can tell you, having done thousands and thousands of deliverances in my lifetime, many times I've had to deliver people from Reiki. Okay? Bottom line, this never would have happened five years ago in our country. And all these doctors are being trained by our medical, leading medical training institutes to go into the world and bring this stuff around the planet. This is a brand new world. Now, here's the great news of this. We know the king. The king of all the spirits is Jesus. Hear me. He has no competition for his throne room. I'll tell you something about Jesus. He is not nervous with this new worldview. And if you think I told you this to make you nervous, you are completely deluded because this does not make me nervous because Jesus is not nervous. I have one deal with Jesus. I say, if you get nervous, let me know. He's never let me know. He hasn't been nervous in 2,000 years, and he isn't planning on being nervous in the future. This stuff does not make him nervous. Hear me again. I said it yesterday. I'm going to say it again. Fear is a tool of the enemy to keep you from the fullness of God. It is not from the Lord because he ain't nervous. So you don't need to be nervous. What you do need to do is start figuring out your authority in Christ. We need to go after this stuff. I just, I just want to push pause for a moment and just remind you how profound this teaching is. Because this morning, you got Foghorn Leghorn, and this afternoon, you Scooby got Scooby-Doo. I mean, it's good. Now, that's, that's profound. Okay. We partner with a church in Harlem, both of us do, and this story will close, and then we're going we're gonna to go to a ministry model, which we'll teach real quick, and then we're going to have you practice. This church in Harlem is uh, it's a pretty tough inner city church. Lots of painful stories coming out of the church. I was there one day, and I was praying for somebody up front, and while I was praying for this woman who was an African-American woman... Uh, she was crying, and this woman on the other side of me fell. Before she fell out, I knew it was not the Holy Spirit. I knew it was demonic. You always have to test manifestations. Some of them are from the Lord, some of them aren't. I have quick discernment. I know stuff really quick. And I knew before she hit the ground, this thing was demonic. So I patted my lady real quick and ushered her off because I knew I had to go get to this thing. And I knelt down on the floor, and I just said to the spirit, spirit, what's your name? And this thing comes out and goes, violence. And I'm like, well, that doesn't sound like Jesus. So I kicked that spirit out. While I'm kicking that one out, the lady on this side of me falls down. And once again, I know it's demonic. This one was not quick. It took me two hours to do the deliverance, which nowadays is a really long time for me to do a deliverance. She had been dedicated to Satan. She had been ritualistically, satanically abused in her forms of witchcraft that she had been involved in, sexual abuse beyond compare. She had been raped at least a half a dozen times. By the way, she was only 21 or two. Horrible life. I had to break through all kinds of stuff, you know. I'm about two-thirds of the way through the deliverance, and when I'm about two-thirds of the way through the deliverance, She's just tired, man. She's really gassed. I mean, this is a, a spiritual warfare, and it's exhausting, and she's just so tired, and she just, she's like, I can't, I can't do anymore, and she's sobbing. I can't do anymore. I got to stop. I got to stop, and I looked at her. Her name was Felicia, and I said to her, Felicia, listen to me, sweetheart. I said, if I leave and I don't finish, no one here is going to be able to help you, and I said, the bottom line is you need to tough it out. I think we got about 10, 15 more minutes or so left, but I said, I need you to tough it out. And she looked at me and she said, oh, okay. 
And then she started wailing out loud. And she started saying this phrase, why wouldn't anyone help me? I kept coming. I told them it was darkness. Why wouldn't anyone help me? I knew it was evil. Why wouldn't anyone help me? She's yelling it across the auditorium. It's like 150 people or so in there at this point. And she's screaming it across the auditorium. I'm telling you, till the day I die, that voice will haunt my head. I said to you before, I'm going to say it again. It is cosmic treason for the church to hold the keys of the kingdom and not to use them to set the captives free. And so I finally got her back focused. We got her free. When we finished, in all my years doing deliverance, I've never seen the presence of God land after a deliverance like this. I finished and, you know, I started asking the test questions to make sure that the, all the spirits were gone and just the Holy Spirit manifested. He started speaking through her first person. And he started saying, you know, she's my baby girl. I love her. I'm so sorry for her pain. And while he's speaking, I'm telling you, the presence of God descended in the room in such a manifest way. I'm not sure I've ever been in a room that had a stronger sense of the presence of God in my life. And while she's speaking, I'm, I'm on the floor with her. I'm kneeling on the floor with her. And all these people were around watching and interceding. And I'm starting to get hit with tears, you know. And the first person that was crying on me was a 50-year-old guy that I'd brought with me that was an intercessor. He was just weeping because the presence of God was so strong. And she had been delivered. And, the, and I get hit with tears on my shoulder. And it's the bishop of the church. And he's weeping. And I'm getting hit with tears on the other arm. And I look, and it's my 13-year-old daughter who I brought with me. And she was weeping. And then I'm getting hit over here, and it's another intercessor. And so, anyways, it was so powerful, just so powerful. When I finished, I had this conversation with the bishop of the church. I said to him, Bishop, I said, you have got to do deliverance. He said to me, we try. I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, they manifest like that. You could see it's demonic, he goes. He said, so, he goes, we go over and we go, come out, come out, come out. I said, what happens? He goes, they get up and run. I said, what do you do? He goes, we run after him and tackle him. I go, Bishop, you're not doing deliverance. You're doing hand-to-hand -hand combat. He goes, yeah. I go, how's it working? He goes, it's not. We do the whole thing again next week. I said to him, you need to learn to use authority. He goes, yeah, I've never seen anything like that. Listen, the church has got to operate with this stuff. Jesus has come to set the captives free. And there are some issues going on in our society today that will not be cleaned up without deliverance ministries. And this is why we got to do this. On Thursday, as I prayed for us, I didn't say y'all, us. Because we're in this together. So God, what do you want to do? And that's where he brought up the experiential piece. I, I want them to use the senses. They've read the stuff. I want them to experience it. See, sense, hear, feel, encounter, experience. I want to bring that to them. And I said, should I pray for at least one screamer and one runner? Because that, that'll show them it's real. It went silent. And I went, no, nah, that's just what I hope for. We, we don't need to convince you. You, you know people. You've had your own struggles with your own soul. You know it's real. In his name. Let's take the authority of Christ. 
We have been given the keys to the kingdom. Jesus just did this. It was, it was a part of many of the pages of the Gospels. So many. It's just the norm. So let's not make us a unique, an odd, a weird, a focal point. It's just normative. Comes up, take care of these. Just take care of them. But let's not be afraid of it. Nor should we make should we make a focus on it. As it comes up, it's part of the healing power of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In my book Soul Care, I actually have a chapter on deliverance, and in the back I have a, a addendum appendix thing that just explains the process four times. I have now had someone who read the book with their spouse, and while they read the book, one of the people manifested. The demonic's presence demonstrated, and the other person, the other member of the family, the other spouse, went to the appendix and led their spouse through deliverance. Four times that story has come back to me now. You did not get a junior Holy Spirit. You got the real deal. And we were driving home from that conference. My 13-year-old daughter was sitting in the back of the car. I had another person with me in the front of the car. And, uh, and we're driving. I'm exhausted. I'm just dead tired from that conference from, from Harlem. And I'm driving home, and I'm on I-95, headed back to Boston, where I lived at the time. And all of a sudden, I hear my daughter's voice come out of the back seat, kind of soft and gentle. And she goes, Dad? I say, yeah, baby. She goes, that was the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. I said, yeah, it's pretty cool when Jesus shows up. She goes, could you train me how to do that? I said, sure, baby. You didn't get a junior Holy Spirit. You got the real deal. Listen, I have two of my daughters who did their first deliverance before they were 15. Jesus isn't nervous. You know, he's just not. All right, let's do a ministry model. Let's teach you through it real quick. First, we're going to have people stand who need prayer today, and when we do, the first question you want to ask them, you know, if you don't know their name, obviously get their name, but if you know who they are, just you would ask this question, what would you like Jesus to do for you? I want to ask the question, what would you like Jesus to do for you, not how would you like me to pray for you, because I want them to get their eyes on Jesus, and I want to remember it's all about him, it's not about me. So that's just the first question, okay? What would you like Jesus to do for you? Now, if you're the person who is giving an answer, Please make it succinct. Sometimes what happens is people have physical problems, for example, and they want to go through their entire medical history. And listen, by the time you're done with your medical history, you have killed every ounce of faith in the room. So please don't do that. Just say, I'm, I'm having, you know, back problems, and I really want to be healed. I'm having whatever. Rule of thumb, explain what you want in three sentences or less. No narrative. Just tell them right to the point. Get to the point. Second, um, at this point, the person who's doing the prayer wants to do a little diagnostics. So uh, they may ask a few questions. So, for example, here's some of the questions that you might want to ask. How long have you had this condition? One important question that I often ask people is when did it start? The reason I ask that question is because often there was a catalyst event that triggered it. For example was dealing with somebody with physical problems, and I asked this question, how long have you had this? And I said to her, has anything, was anything traumatic at the time of this 
physical manifestation, this problem you're having. And she said, yes, she went through divorce at that time. Her husband left her for another woman. I said to her, okay. I said, have you forgiven him? She said, no. She prayed blessings on him, released him, and her physical problems went away before I even prayed for him. Okay? So that's why you want to ask some of these questions. Did anything happen? Sometimes you're going to discover there's a root there. Um, many times you will discover you will find healing in that moment. I prayed for a guy in Brazil. He had a shoulder that was frozen. He, like, couldn't move his shoulder, even parallel with his, his, his arm, rather, parallel with his shoulder. And I, I did this diagnostic with him. And I said to him, you know, is there anything that happened at the time? And he said, yes, I had a falling out with my son. And he said, I'm really bitter towards my son. And uh, he told me, what, you know, the, the thing that had happened that fell out. I said to him, you're going to have to forgive your son. He prayed one of the most beautiful prayers, sobbing, releasing his son. And by the time he finished the prayer, I laid my hand on his shoulder and said, now come Holy Spirit, take away the pain. That's all I prayed. I mean, it's a simple, short prayer. And he literally thrust his arms in the air because he knew it was better. And he's just jumping up and down, waving his arms. Um, just go for the root. That's what you're looking for. Sometimes you'll discover there's a root. Not always, but sometimes. Third, then pray, but keep your prayers short. 20-minute prayers Make it too much about you. You're making it too much about you. Uh, we, we did a short training before y'all came last night, and I said, Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead with two words, come forth. You don't need moments, sentences. If you like, he actually brought Lazarus back from the dead in one word. Arise. Arise. Yeah, think so, about Jesus' prayers in the gospel. How many short. times just simply a statement, be healed yeah. according to your faith. I mean, it's yeah. simple, okay? So keep it focused on Jesus and cultivate a sense of his presence. Again, don't make it about you. And be loving. Again, we always encourage people to keep their eyes open when they're praying. That's because sometimes you'll see something happening. And so keep your eyes open. Except those of you who are just a little bit of a creeper. <laughs> and then just step back. Again, level of laughter, level of guilt. Um, just step back a little if you're a little creepy. Just step back a little. But keep your eyes open. And then just follow the leadings of the Spirit. As you're praying, a lot of times all I do is I'll say, Come Holy Spirit. Bring the healing power of Jesus. That's my prayer. And then I'm just waiting for the Holy Spirit. I got nothing. I don't need to filibust. I don't need to make anything happen because I can't. I'm just waiting for the Holy Spirit. That's all I'm doing, okay? Then I'm listening to see if the Holy Spirit will give me anything while I'm praying. And sometimes he will. Sometimes he'll give me a picture. Sometimes he'll give me a word. And I might then test that, right? Um, I was in Brazil again praying for a woman who was, had a weird, I think it was osteoporosis, hard to tell through translation, but she would bend over and she couldn't straighten. She just gets stuck. So it was so funny because they're an older couple, you know, and, and so he's explaining her disease. And so he's telling, and I got a translator filling me in on the gaps, and he's telling, like, she can bend over, she can't get back up. Show him, show him. She's going, he's going to her. And so she bends over, now she can't move. And then he says, I got to straighten her. And he, he rips her back up, right? And I'm like, all right, all right, slow down, slow down. You know. Such compassion. Oh, my gosh. Well, he's so excited because he was expecting healing, right? So anyhow... 
I, I pray, and this is my whole prayer. Come, Holy Spirit. Bring straightening to whatever's broken inside or fix heal. That's it. I'm waiting. And I'm waiting. I'm listening. And uh, I get a prompting. I said to her, do you feel anything? She said, yeah, I feel like tingling all down through my back. I said, that's the Holy Spirit. He's at work. I said, let's just wait on him. And I just waited with her for, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes. And at the end of 10 minutes, I said, do you feel anything? She said, no, the tingling stopped. I said, now bend over. She bends over. She gets up. Now she's doing deep knee bends. She's praising God. Uh, listen, sometimes all you need to do in this moment is keep a short prayer focused on Jesus and then wait because he's doing something. You just got to wait, okay? And a lot of times I'll wait for 10 minutes or so. And sometimes in the middle, as you're praying, just push pause and say, is, is anything happening? Give yep. us a, just give us a report. You, you remember when Jesus did it with the blind guy and he said, I see man as trees walking. It, it was beginning to come, but he couldn't. Uh, I mean, often in praying several times, in praying with people who are blind, um, we'll stop in the middle and just say, what, what's happening? And they will, they'll give a very clear report. Um, stuff's beginning I'm seeing shadows I'm seeing this I feel this I'm having heat my, f my favorite one is Ron Walburn and I were praying with a woman who had not seen in 13 years she was 83 and she you could tell she was blind because we were getting near the end of everything and she stood up in the middle of the service and she said uh, young man I was speaking you could tell she was blind um, called me young man and she said I, I can tell we're finishing up I want to be prayed for to see well I mean there were probably 400 people or more and it was interesting because again when, when the blind see it's different than an ache or a pain those are all matter but this is just really categorically different and so we just said absolutely it's just brought her right up and had somebody stand with her and our friend Ron is, God uses him in prayers for healing like nobody else I know and so I was standing in front of her. I had her hands. He was praying for her. He just, he just touched her right above her eyes. It was probably a 10-second thing, and he stopped, and he goes, open your eyes. Something's happening. Open your eyes. And she looks up, and she goes, you have a really nice beard. And Ron goes, quick, Put someone else in front of her. We don't want the first thing she's seen in 13 years to be Martin. <laughs> <laughs> we did another round, another installment, and then handed her a Bible, and she started to read. And she was so excited. She goes, I'm going to be able to read my Bible in 13 years. Oh, so good. And this is the re-interview process that he's talking to you yeah. about. you got to ask what's happening. And this time you're still listening. Because sometimes when you're sitting here reviewing, re-interviewing re with the person, what you'll discover is a new question begins to emerge. Um, something like, has anyone else had this in your family? Are you feeling afraid? Is there any bitterness in your heart? Uh, you may start to discern there's a curse that has led to this. So you just want to start paying attention. Stop praying when you're gaining no ground and you're receiving no other help. And you know what? At that moment... Just make sure the person feels loved. Hear me. Please never blame them.
You know, so many times I watch people, well, it's just because you don't have faith to receive. No, it's because you're being an idiot. Stop that. Okay? Don't do that to someone. They're already sick. Have mercy. So, you know, I just look at the person and, I, you know, I'll, I'll pray blessing on them. I'll pray the Lord will minister to them. And I usually encourage them to keep coming for healing because I have seen people who have come dozens of times and only on the 20th time or the 13th time they experienced healing. And so just don't be discouraged. Keep it up. Martin's had a healing that that happened as well. And finally, a couple of post-prayer suggestions. You know, share scripture that can encourage them. Uh, you may share appropriate lifestyle changes, like if there's bitterness, you might need to bless those who curse you, for example. And you encourage them to persist again until they've been healed. All right. Now, here's what we want. We want to actually have you do this with one another. So if you are in need of healing, be it physical, spiritual, or emotional, please stand right where you are right now. This isn't a long altar call. This is a, a quick moment. Stand where you are if you need any of that. All right. Now, the rest of you are the prayer team, okay? I want everybody in the room to be with someone who is now uh, standing who needs prayer and go through this process of interviewing them, okay? What would you like Jesus to do for you? If you don't know their name, ask their name. What would you like Jesus to do for you? And then after, you want to listen, and you want to do that short prayer and try to listen to the Holy Spirit. Do it as a team. Uh, go. Pray for people. And as soon as you have been prayed for, become part of the team who goes to somebody else who still needs prayer. Hey, and if you experience healing, um, just wave your arms, you know? Just wave your hands so we know if you experience healing. But go ahead. Pray for one another.